Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, prolific cookbook author and food writer Mark Bittman. Mark is probably best known for his book, How to Cook Everything, a 2000 recipe tome that has sold over a million copies, won five prestigious awards, and has basically been gifted to every college graduate in America in the hopes that they will transition from top ramen to cooking roasted vegetables. But Mark has written more than two dozen cookbooks. He wrote about food for the New York Times for 30 years, and he has a new podcast called Food with Mark Bittman. I see that they finally got to you. It is now the law in America to have a podcast. And so out of fear of being deported, you have joined the club. (laughs) It just seemed like the right time. We've actually tried before, but things didn't work out. But this time it was easy and it's happening and it's doing well. And we're really happy about it. And I don't know how, after all these years of podcasts, you managed to get the name Food. That wasn't taken yet. No one understands that. But yes, you're right. The fact that no one's calling their podcast food. So I said, well, why don't we call it food? Mark Bittman, we were done in like 10 seconds. Later in the show, former Bon Appetit food director and cookbook author Carla Lolly Music teaches us how to shop for dinner without a recipe or a shopping list. When I go to the farmer's market, people are constantly asking me, hey, what are you going to do with that? Like a stock of purple kohlrabi, for example. It looks like an alien. It's like a purple bulb with these like giant leaves and it's unclear. And I get how people would maybe come home with seven pounds of Swiss chard and then be lost. This is also our Father's Day episode. So Mark's daughter, Kate Bittman, will join the conversation and we're going to hear stories from you. Dear, dear listeners, about the wonderful, weird, and disgusting, your word, not mine, foods their dads cooked when they were growing up. But first, my conversation with Mark Bittman. So you're recording in your kitchen. You must be a New Yorker. No, but my mother is. Um, (laughs) My mother is also. Uh I'm in Seattle. Uh-huh. I'm in Bermuda, so there are some. There's a lot of birds. You're gonna. Ha- there's nothing that can be done about it. There's just birds. You can't. So it'll sound like I'm in off. a zoo. No. Okay. You're in Bermuda. Wow, that's very like a part of the song Kokomo. How exotic. <laughs> it's um, my partner's half Bermudian, which is sort of the excuse. But yeah. That's awesome. So you said growing up, you hated eating at home with your parents. Why is that? I mean, my mother, who is alive, so there's a limit to how much I can say about her, uh, although she doesn't listen to podcasts. My mother um, didn't like to eat, really, and she didn't really like to cook. Now, in her defense, and and I will say lovingly, she put dinner on the table every single night. She did it out of obligation, responsibility, and love. She didn't do it out of joy, I have to say. And my father was not a nice person. Eating dinner was a little bit of a torture chamber. You know, you had to eat everything on your plate. People were starving in India. Some nights it was China. You know, there were reasons for this. I mean, I understand it much better now that I'm not a child, but, you know, they grew up hungry. They grew up eating boiled potatoes. They grew up, some meat was a treat. And, and, you know, we had meat on the table every night and you had to like finish every bite of that meat. And it just wasn't fun. And when I 
could leave home, I did. And when I could leave home permanently, which I could when I was 17, I did. And I never went back. I didn't enjoy food in a kind of family, like sit around the table with people in someone's home. I didn't really learn how to enjoy that until I left home. Yeah. So where did your love of food come from? And was there a person or an experience that introduced you to good food or that nice community feeling of having a nice time eating together? I had a roommate in college who who was a short order cook and he taught me a few things. We had fun together, but really it was 1970. I moved back to New York. I met a woman who became my first wife and her roommates, and they were like totally into cooking and totally into going to cool, cheap restaurants. And I learned so much from them. And I just started cooking because it looked like fun. And I, you know, I remember the first couple of things I cooked. I remember really enjoying it. The thing about cooking is, especially when you're cooking with or for other people, you know, A, you get to eat the results. And if you did a good job, they're delicious. And B, you get to like make other people like you because you're giving them food. People are very inclined to like people who give them food. So it just took off from there. And then the next year I moved back to Massachusetts and lived alone and I was cooking for myself. It was like a giant science experiment. I was just cooking all the time, making things You know, I didn't know you could bake bread at home. I had no idea. I didn't know you could make French fries in your house. I didn't know you could boil lobster, all of that stuff. And I was like, look at this. You can do whatever you want. And it was, I was 20 years old. It was amazing to me. And I got into it immediately. I never stopped. I still haven't stopped. What were those first couple dishes slash do you remember what your friends were cooking in that house? Because I want to know what were the trends in 1970? You know, what was the kale of 1970? There was no kale, I can tell you. Um, There were barely fresh vegetables. I mean, bearing in mind, we were living off of Bleecker Street in the village. You know, the notion of having more than one kind of potato in a supermarket or even more than one kind of lettuce. I mean, there was iceberg lettuce. That was it. There wasn't even romaine yet. I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm not making this up. I sometimes feel like I have to explain that really back then there was literally one kind of lettuce. There was iceberg lettuce. That was it. But there was no green leaf. There was no red leaf. No one had heard of arugula. I guess some Italians did, but you'd go to an Italian restaurant and they'd give you fennel and you'd be like, what is this? So so this is by way of saying that everything that we cooked was with very common and not very good ingredient, no organic, no rearrange this or anything like that. So they made an awesome meatloaf. It like had raw onions and ketchup and chili, a cocktail sauce like you would use for shrimp cocktail. Now you wouldn't think this was the best meatloaf you ever had, but it was really tasty. And, you know, my mother made meatloaf. First of all, maybe your mother did this. This is the craziest thing, though. But my mother made meatloaf with a hard-boiled egg in the middle. I don't know why. I like, have that a was a weird mom thing. who did that. I remember the moment I ate it. I was 20, and I remember never seeing this before. I thought it was cool because yeah. when you sliced it, you got the slice of egg. I thought it was very visually pleasing, but I'd never heard I of it either. Yeah. On the other end, my mother would, like, overcook meatloaf, and then you just would have to drown it in ketchup. So this was really a step up. And pork chops, hangros, which was a hangros means Hungarian style, was like a Craig Claiborne recipe. So we had the New York Times cookbook, the first New York Times cookbook. Pork chops, hangros was like pork chops with sour cream and paprika. Mm. Really good. That was like lights out. I never had anything that great. That was really something. 
And then the first the first thing I made was I just looked up the recipe and it's also a great Claiborne recipe. And it's kind of like putting in a meringue shell and the meringue shell has chopped pecans or walnuts in it. So you beat the egg whites forever and then you fold in chopped nuts and then you bake that until it's crisp and then you pour in this chocolate pudding and you put it in the refrigerator. Real chocolate pudding, not like mighty fine. And you put it in the refrigerator. That was like out of this world. So good. That's a very ambitious first recipe actually to make meringue. Totally stupid, but yes. I mean, I was like beating the thing for... I seemed an hour and I was like, what is, isn't something supposed to be happening? And nothing was happening, but it worked. It was really worked and it was super delicious. I want to make that. And then the second thing I made was pork chops on gross. Cause I had seen them make it. I knew it was good. We had all the ingredients except for the pork chops. So yeah, I did that. All of your story rings true because I told you before we started recording, my mom is from Brooklyn and she moved to California in the early 70s and she'd never heard of an artichoke or asparagus before. And the only thing she knew how to make was pork chops and rice-a-roni. Rice-a-roni. I mean, I remember when rice-a-roni came out. It's so like, it makes me feel so old, but it was like, this stuff is really cool. It's rice with noodles in it. Who could imagine? Yeah. Two carbs. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Bittman's cooking has come a long, long way since pork chops with paprika in 1970. I've never said it like that before. I always say paprika. That was really fun. I'm going to say it again. Paprika. 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 But what would Mark like to eat for his last meal? That's coming up right after this quick break. What would your last meal be? I thought about this. Probably not enough, but I thought about this. I would like my last meal to be cooked by me, and I would like to go shopping first, and I would like to buy what looks good. And I don't know what that is. The fun part of cooking for me is whether I'm shopping in my pantry, in my refrigerator, in my freezer, in a store, at the farmer's market, but da 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 I'm just interested in what looks best. What looks best or maybe what I haven't had in a while. And that is what matters. And that's a key to cooking well, I think, also. So that's kind of the best answer I can give you. You got to say, not everybody says that. Yeah, you're the first. It's a little obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) I eat as simply as I cook. Increasingly, I'm fed up with fanciness. And when I go to restaurants... I don't feel like, oh, this is a treat. I get to eat this way. I feel like I wish I were at home. I mean, and that's not true if I go to a sort of funky mom and pop and they're cooking the food they've cooked all their lives. I mean, that's that has a ring of authenticity and and needs to be honored. And is that can be really fun. But um, fancy stuff just has no appeal to me. I don't have a favorite food. I think that once you really know how to cook and once you appreciate what good food is. That is how you like to cook, is whatever is good that day. For his last meal, Mark Bittman wants whatever is fresh at the market that day. He wants to go shopping for the ingredients, and he wants to cook it himself. And as soon as the words were out of his mouth, I immediately thought of one person. Carla Lolly Music. 
Carla wrote a cookbook called Where Cooking Begins that teaches people how to improvise and cook based on what looks good at the market and what's hanging out in your pantry at home. But before we get into that, real quick, I want to tell you a little bit about Carla's career history. She started out working as a line cook at a couple New York City restaurants. And then from there, I went to Shake Shack. I was the first general manager in the first location in Madison Square Park which was amazing and also exhausting. From there, she moved into food media. From 2011 until last year, Carla was food director at Bon Appetit magazine, where she also starred in their incredibly popular YouTube videos and frequently appeared on the podcast. Long story short, Carla knows how to cook. I think for a lot of people, picking out what looks good at the market and planning a meal around that is daunting. Basically, you have to be a recipe developer, which is not every home cook's strength. So if you're not Mark Bittman and you haven't written 30 cookbooks <laughs> and you're not Carla Lolly Music, who has you know worked in a test kitchen and your job is to come up with new recipes all the time. Let's say you do go to the market, farmer's market, grocery store, and you, you want to use this method and you're looking at what's fresh. Yeah. How do you devise what you're going to make in your mind in that moment? Make sure you get all the stuff you need to go with that ingredient that looks good. Yeah, I think you may not find everything at the farmer's market, and that is the beauty of it. Your home kitchen is going to provide the staples that actually enable the cooking just as much as this like full, beautiful, seasonal, bountiful thing is going to. My philosophy is you pick up your protein and your produce, and you bring them home, and then you figure out all the go-withs that will kind of enhance those things. Um, the farmer's market is not going to have... like seasonings necessarily condiments right grains maybe not um legumes like those things should be at home so it's very freeing and at the bare minimum we're talking about salt pepper olive oil or some other kind of cooking oil and lemon or another something with acidity and with those components you can make anything taste pretty pretty amazing Yes. I had heard you say that on other podcasts <laughs> and that made me feel so good because that's what I do. You know, with yeah. vegetables, that is how I probably cook 80% of vegetables is that way. And it is always good. But sometimes because if you're reading food magazines and listening to podcasts and you're so in that world, I feel like, am I not doing enough? Am I not exploring the fancy spices? I should be like, is this boring? Right. Even though I like it, I think yeah. I should be doing something else. So if you like it, that's the most important thing. If you like it, you're, you're like you're honoring the ingredient by cooking it well and making it taste good and like serving it hot or <laughs> serving it cold if it's meant to be served cold, then like you're good. I think that we have a kind of obsession with constantly wanting to find a new recipe, like a, a new thing, a different thing. And I make the same things over and over and over and over again because I love them and I can change a little thing about them, but I don't need to reinvent that dish. Like that dish is super sustaining and delicious to me. It makes my family happy. We eat pasta fagioli every Sunday night. I change the greens that might be in it. Sometimes I make it with the pork. Sometimes I make it without the pork. Sometimes I use canned tomatoes. Sometimes I use tomato paste. You know, the shape of the pasta might change and it always is slightly different and it's like always good. So there's nothing wrong with that. I think if you own spices, right? You should experiment with adding some. Say it's a chicken thigh, you're doing your salt and pepper, you're you're cooking it so the skin gets crispy, but you want another little something. 
um, I would pull open your spice drawer and figure out like what you've already bought and could maybe start to use. And if you're working in like one to two teaspoon quantities, it's not going to be enough to ruin anything. So you can totally experiment. I love that. Excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think cooking classes have helped me. And even, you know, when Blue Apron first came out, I experimented with that. And the thing that it did was it introduced me to new spices. Like you said, you know, I started adding more. um, I never know how do you pronounce it. Berberet. Did I say right? Berberet. Berbere, yes. (laughs) Uh, And it's like you use it once, then you actually know what it tastes like because you don't want to commit to the whole spice jar. And I now buy my spices exclusively in bulk because, you know, first of all, I feel like I'm never going to get through that whole container by the time it's dusty. But also then, you know, you just try a little bit. And if you like it, you buy a little bit more. And so, yeah, I think the spices is good advice for branching out the olive oil, salt and pepper. Like I'm a smoked paprika girl. I'll put that on anything. (laughs) It makes everything good. I just used it in a rib recipe. That was one of those ingredients that like really jumped the shark like six, eight years ago. Everybody was cooking with sweet paprika. And then it came on the scene and like chefs started, you know, using it more. And then, you know, people's palates were awakened. And then it jumped into like McCormick had it. Then it was game on. (laughs) it's like the the jack-in-the-box breakfast paprika burger like that's when you know (laughs) exactly yeah I think with spices the first time I saw like a bulk spice you know section at the end of the spice aisle my mind was blown because spices are expensive and you know people often buy them for one recipe and then are like what do I do with this now you know yeah and there's nothing as satisfying as being at the checkout and it's like 14 cents 21 cents I'm like I love a bargain (laughs) So can I name like a few ingredients and you can kind of tell me what you would do, you know, if that's in season and you see it at the store and it looks good, maybe a couple things you might do. Um, So right now, everyone's pee smells like asparagus. It's asparagus season, at least on the West, it still is in Seattle. So what are some things, if that looks good, if that's at the market that you would think to do? I love asparagus and I have no problem with asparagus pee. So I just want to say neither. that a lot of people <laughs> really do and like avoid eating asparagus because of that. Really? But like no one ever says that about coffee. Yeah, you know? there is coffee pee. <laughs> totally. <laughs> just, you know, it's just life. Um, yeah. I love my, I guess my favorite way to cook asparagus is to grill it um, because mm-hmm. I love that combination of like smoky and a little bit charred but I keep it really crunchy so I'm definitely like like a medium to large stock asparagus so that you have a little Mm -hmm. a little play time a little room to get like nice color without overcooking so yeah that's one of those that like salt pepper olive oil finishing with, with lemon is like a great way to honor the asparagus it's really delicious raw so another really yummy thing that you can do with it is cutting it on the bias a little bit so you get like those sort of oval shaped pieces and that is incredibly delicious with like lots of grated parm um, Mm. olive oil more flaky salt some chili flake a little bit and letting that marinate for you know 20 or 30 minutes and it'll get Mm. super juicy and that could be something that you put onto toast like to make a bruschetta or you could serve it on a nice like soft wheel of moths um, or mm. you could take that mixture and make pasta or rice and then just stir the cold marinated asparagus into that at the end and it'll just kind of get warmed through mm-hmm. and like tons of herbs like mint or dill basil would be so good with that 
Okay, now I know what I'm making this week. I was like, keep okay. going. Yes, yes, on the mozzarella. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to really put you on the spot because I just thought of this. So you can like take a minute or spit out like first thing you think of. So let's say it was your last meal and you were going to do the Mark Bittman style where you were going to make what was in season and what looked good. You can choose the season. You can choose whatever time of year. Mm, okay. Well, if I was going to do the seasonal thing, it might be just a giant quart of the best blueberries. And those, I kind of eat them by the fistful. Uh-huh. Like there's something so like indulgent and awesome about eating those on the walk home or if I'm out at the beach that the, my favorite farm stand is a little bit of a drive to where I need to go, just eating them in the car, hand to face. And I wouldn't even need anything to drink with that. But I love blueberries. They come with their own juice. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a food and a drink. I would love to go to bed on a, on a full belly of blueberries. <laughs> That's so cute. You're like a bear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Mark's daughter Kate talks about what it was like growing up with a cookbook author for a dad, and you, the listeners, share your favorite memories of what your dad's cooked when you were kids. When I was setting up the interview with Mark, I noticed that I was emailing with another Bitman. So I Googled the name and I discovered that it was Mark's daughter, Kate, who runs her own PR firm. So I asked Kate if she would join our conversation, which immediately transformed this into a Father's Day episode. It's just so timely. So Kate, what was it like in a household where one of your parents cooked for a living, you know, wrote cookbooks for a living? Did you notice anything special? Did you know that you were living a different culinary life than any of your other friends? We just sort of wanted to eat what the other kids were eating. So <laughs> while the meals were, you know, in hindsight, I understand how delicious they were. It was like anything else your parent does. It was embarrassing to some extent. And our friends would come over and we would just be like, can we please just have something normal? <laughs> like what? Um, like one of my camp friends reminded me not that long ago. Like, do you remember I came over that time and your dad had a huge squid sitting in the sink? Uh. <laughs> like stuff like that kind of happened routinely. I think I ate the food. I think it was more just like I was embarrassed by the food the same way I was embarrassed by his music tastes, which now in hindsight, he has incredible music tastes. He likes Roxy music and Elvis Costello and David Bowie. But then it was like, oh my God, we're in the car and he's listening to his weird music and I'm sitting in the back with my friends just cringing. So it was the same sort of thing. Yeah, that's a dad's job to be embarrassing weird dad. I think totally. that's probably right. Dad's jobs are to be embarrassing. Yeah. What were the he did a good job of it. What were the foods that you wanted? What were the normal foods? Artichokes. I mean, artichokes just have always been my favorite food. I just right, can't but that's get not normal. Your friends no. would be like, what is that weird thing? Totally. Totally. Actually, when I was pregnant, the only thing I really craved was artichoke carts. Hmm. And we must have spent hundreds of dollars on the Whole Foods olive bar just like getting artichoke carts. <laughs> So you wrote an article called My Dad is Mark Bittman and My Son is a Picky Eater. Now what? 
Did you feel the, any kind of pressure? Oh, because I come from this food legacy. Did you feel a pressure for your kid to eat a lot of variety of foods? I did. He also wrote this piece for the Times Magazine a while back about kids and eating. And it was before I had my son and it all seemed very straightforward. And it's just not as easy as I as he sort of made it seem. No offense, dad, but I just, like, I mean, and he knows he's been around my son. He knows how he is with food. And it's sort of just like, you have to pick your battles. And yes, I feel pressure, but I also think that every parent feels pressure. So I don't know if mine is more or less. My father has been pretty accepting of it. I'll say that. I don't care what he does. So, yeah. <laughs> it's easier to be a grandparent. You just give them whatever they want. I'd give them ice cream for dinner. I don't care. What is your favorite thing that your dad would make? A non-embarrassing, delicious thing. A non <laughs> He just makes noodles and he adds a bunch of pasta water and butter and parmesan and just tosses it all together. And that was my favorite thing. But he made it sort of soupy, like the noodles weren't overcooked. They were perfect, but it was sort of like a noodle soup almost, huh. but just made with the pasta water. Sounds like a extra wet cacio e pepe. Yeah, it is. It's so good. I wonder if he could still make it. He hasn't made it in so long. I didn't grow up with a cookbook author for a dad, but it actually is my dad who is responsible for my love of food and my deep, deep culinary curiosity. My dad loves to eat food from all around the world, and I wasn't a very picky kid, so when I was very little, I was eating chicken feet at dim sum parlors, I learned to use chopsticks when I was in elementary school, and my dad got me to love fried smelt by calling it nutritious, delicious little fishes. He eats the eyes of fish, and he slurps the gelatin out of jars of gefilte fish, two things that really grossed me out when I was a kid, but I now see that the falafel doesn't fall far from the pita. I I have eaten live fish in Japan, guinea pig in Peru, and balut in Vietnam. So that's a little bit about my dad. I wanted to hear your dad food memories. So I put a call out to all of you who follow on Instagram. It's Hello Rachel Bell if you want to follow along. B-E-L-L-E. And here are a few of the stories that you sent in. My dad used to get season tickets to the Husky football games every year when I was a kid. I never really cared about the football games, but my favorite dad memory was the hot chocolate he would make and bring in a thermos to the games. And I've tried to replicate it, never quite got it right, but he always made the hot chocolate on the stove with real milk, and he added a touch of vanilla to it, and it was just amazing. And no matter how horrible the weather was, we'd have that wonderful hot chocolate, and I will always remember that of my dad. My dad used to eat the most disturbing, troubling sandwiches when I was a child. He would spread peanut butter lovingly all over the toast, gently place slices of onion on top of the peanut butter, and gobble it down. He was also known for eating entire onions like they were apples. Gah, it was disgusting. Love you, Dad. I'm Egyptian. My dad's Egyptian. He traveled a lot. He loved French food, but he couldn't pronounce any of the foods very well. He loved croissants and crepes, <laughs> like crepes. But he also loved really trashy diner fast food, too. And whenever he'd visit the U.S. from Egypt, he'd make a point of going to Denny's for the pancakes, the Grand Slam, and he would get have leftovers he'd bring him back to his hotel and i'd visit him at his hotel he'd be, Tarek, i have leftovers from denny's pancakes <laughs> sausage eggs 
And I would, Dad, this stuff is gross. I don't want to eat leftover Denny's. And he'd say, come on, Tarek, live the good life. This was the good life for him because he grew up in the in Egypt in the, the 60s where they didn't have these uh, magical diners. When I was little, my dad used to make pancakes in the shape of the letter of our first name, but also big turtle pancakes, and I loved those. My dad, or Papa as I know him, is a fabulous cook and always went all out with his weeknight meals that he'd cook for my brother and I as a halftime single dad. And he taught me at a very young age how to make his mother's vinaigrette dressing recipe in the big old wooden salad bowl worn down by years of use. You have to peel the garlic and crush it into salt, squeeze in lime, mustard, the juice off the top of a jam jar, balsamic vinegar and olive oil. Yeah, my dad uh, never taught me how to throw a football, but he did teach me how to cook and how to love food. So many thanks to him for that. Happy Father's Day, Papa. Carla Lolly Music grew up in a house of good food. Her mom was a food writer and cookbook editor. But what about her dad? Dad's real expertise with food was wine. <laughs> my mom's the amazing cook. My dad is the guy that you want at the table to pick out the wine. He loves Italian wines. He loves California wines. He just loves wine. Even as a little kid, I was getting poured just half an ounce of wine at the table. Yeah, that's um, so Italian. Totally. Yeah, we had a really funny um, pediatrician visit recently where my younger son, the pediatrician asked him normal pediatrician questions for a tween. And this was when I was out of the room. The pediatrician asked my son, you know, is there drug or alcohol use at home? And he said, yeah, alcohol, sure. <laughs> and the pediatrician was like, well, tell me more about that. He was like, yeah, well, I'll have a little bit of wine a couple nights a week with dinner. And so when I came back in the room, the pediatrician was like, so uh, wine at dinner? And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, he's just getting like... We're Italian and just a little. And he was like, oh, okay. So okay. we're talking about like a splash. And I was like, yeah, totally a splash. And then my son was like, well, I wanted to tell the truth. I was like, no, no, it's good that you did. Yes. <laughs> and it was good that I was there to clarify because, yeah. Um, I think just saying we're Italian should have been enough. I Carry know. On, he was like, I think I get it. And then I realized like, wow, you know, the the privilege that I have to be able to say like, I'm Italian and it's no big deal. And like, yeah, it was, you know, it was a moment. Um, okay. So my dad though, yes, definitely has benefited and relied on the fact that my mom was the cook in the family, but I have very distinct memories as a teen of nights on when she would be out on her own, or maybe she was on a business trip and he was sort of left to fend for himself and he always would make this thing that he called garbage pasta. He would just go into the fridge and pull out any leftovers, any bits of greens that like still looked good. We used to always have radicchio in the house to put into salad. So he would have like a wedge of radicchio, maybe some like leftover proteins. And he would saute all those things in a big cast iron skillet. And he would boil pasta in a separate pot. And then... At the end, he would add cream to whatever he had mm. in the saute pan, just like a little, just to make it a little saucy and dump the pasta in there and put a ton of parm on it. And it was kind of like always really good. And we would mm -hmm. laugh at him because he was, he just wasn't comfortable behind the stove. <laughs> you know, he's doing this, he's reaching over <laughs> here, arms. he's clanking around <laughs> and we're like, why are you cooking? This is disturbing to us. 
But then he would have this like really yummy leftover pasta with cream sauce. And he was always really pleased with himself. Please as punch. And it totally goes with the theme of this whole episode of just exactly. taking what you got and making something with it. That's right. So Mark, you said growing up, the yeah. dinner table wasn't a very fun place um, and it wasn't a very delicious place. When you had children, was that a part of your plan to make it a different experience? Did you have a goal to make the dinner table a nice place? I mean, I don't know that I consciously had that goal, but I really loved the hours between five and seven. I just really loved that. And um, part of it was, that was how I made recipes faster and shorter. I would look up recipes and I'd be like, you don't need to do this, you don't need to do that, you don't need to do this. And so I'd turn 45 minute recipes into 20 minute recipes and so on. And I had fun doing that and the kids did help, sometimes begrudgingly, sometimes willingly. And then sitting around at the table was fun. Yeah, I don't think Kate's gonna be doing this interview 25, 30 years from now after I'm dead and saying, yeah, really, it wasn't much fun sitting around eating dinner in my house when I was a kid. And I, like I said, I don't think it was a conscious goal, but certainly I was happy about it. And that was Mark Bittman's last meal. I did not like talking about your last meal. Um, oh, yeah. I had a physical reaction to it. Right, yeah. Well, it's just sort of a thing. People ask I know. Me that. I'm sorry if my answer was disappointing, but I don't like to give conventional answers. So there you go. No, it wasn't disappointing. And I was teasing you when I said it was obnoxious because it's like, oh, because it's like, <laughs> how do I not answer this question? So you're making it more challenging for my job, which is good. <laughs> Mark's new podcast is called Food with Mark Bittman. He has a few episodes out now and his guests include Nigella Lawson, the legendary Ted Danson, and past your last meal guest, Carla Hall. Hootie hoo! Thanks to Kate Bittman and Carla Lolly Music. Carla has a cooking show on Patreon called Carla's Cooking Show. Her book that we talked about today is called Where Cooking Begins, and she'll have a new book out this fall. Thanks to all of you who sent in your dad stories. I wish that I could have played all of them. But if you want to be a part of a future Your Last Meal episode, make sure you're following along on Instagram. Hello, Rachel Bell, B-E-L-L-E. That is where I will post asking for your input every now and then, and I usually do it in the stories. This episode is produced by Laura Scott and me, theme music by Prom Queen. Never miss an episode of Your Last Meal. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, subscribe. If you listen on Spotify, hit follow. And if you have a quick minute, a teeny tiny little moment, leave the show a review. It honestly does help to get the show out to more people. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. So I have two screens. So if I'm looking away, I'm looking at your volume. Let me just test your level. Uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? What did I have for breakfast? Granola and cashew milk. Yes, I made them both. <laughs>